This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 50 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I have a special guest with me. Her name is Brittany Bohatch, and she is a friend of mine and a pediatric SLP. And the reason I wanted to bring her on the show is because she has had quite a range of experience with the pediatric population, and she has worked in a number of different school settings, specifically with contract positions, and she has really seen it all as far as how behavior and communication is handled in the school setting. And we get into a really interesting conversation about where there are issues, what people can do to make sure that kids feel validated and supported, and at the same time to challenge them so that they can learn valuable skills so that they can grow up to live a good life. And we really get into the discussion of ableism. And if you are in the field and you're familiar with this concept, obviously it's something that is very nuanced because if you go in one direction, you can be traumatizing to kids and very dismissive of where they are in their development. But then on the other end, But then on the other end, if you don't challenge kids, then you don't teach them skills that will help them to be independent and again, live a good life. So it's really a subtle balance between the two. And yes, it can be easy to go from one extreme to another. And I am always trying to find that middle ground. So I think it's really important to continue having these conversations. So In this discussion, I'm going to break it up. We had quite a long conversation, and I'm going to break it up into two episodes. So I'll share the first half of the interview today, and then I will share the second half next week. But we talk through a number of different ways you can support kids in school settings to learn communication skills in a way that is not ableist, but then at the same time, also pushes kids to to be better and to be more independent. Specifically, we get into a conversation of early childhood classrooms. There's a lot of common scenarios and staple activities that are done in preschool classrooms or even classrooms that are our kindergarten. And if kids are in a special ed classroom, a lot of times there's a lot of kindergarten preparation going on in those classrooms at that level. And there's been quite a discussion about 
what kids should be learning at that age. I know a lot of people feel that we are pushing kids beyond where they really are developmentally and we're expecting too much too soon at that age. As you might know, learning is very play-based when you have young kids. And in the schools, there's really a push for things to be more academic sooner than we used to expect this. I've heard the saying, kindergarten is the new first grade and things like that. And so I know there's quite a debate there. And there are a lot of, like I said, common staple activities like circle time and calendar time and a lot of activities that are done with very young kids that are very academic and some kids respond well to it. But for other kids who aren't quite ready for that developmentally, sometimes it can be a challenge and you might see some, quote, negative behaviors. And so we get into a conversation about how to handle that in a way that is supportive and is helping kids to build skills. So we'll really focus on that this first part of the conversation. So before I get into the episode, we do have a few conversations about meeting kids where they're at and not necessarily shaming them or punishing them for not being able to do a skill that they just don't have yet. As I've said before, it would be silly to expect someone who's in a wheelchair to run up a flight of stairs, or it would be silly to expect a child in kindergarten to do algebra, for example. I know those are two different scenarios because in one scenario, we have someone who has a disability and might always be in a wheelchair. And then we have another scenario where a child doesn't have a skill yet, and maybe they will learn it. And and this is always kind of the balance that we're facing where it's, okay, sometimes we might need to learn to teach kids to compensate and learn a different way of doing something. And sometimes we can teach them to do said skill. We just need to do it in the right sequence at the right time when they're ready. So the resource that I wanted to mention to you today, if you want to learn more about how you can implement some of the broad concepts that we talk about in this episode in practice, then I recommend that you check out the Time Tracking Journal. What this is, is a tool to guide discussions and to help your kids be more independent during day-to-day tasks that require independence and that also have multiple steps. This could be something simple like getting dressed in the morning, making a meal, even organizing your homework. There are a lot of things that we want kids to learn how to do independently, but during the course of the day, they might be non-preferred activities. And sometimes kids have a hard time figuring out what to do first, second, etc. And then also, if you have a task that is non-preferred, sometimes there's a bit of a mindset shift that needs to happen in kids in order for them to, to do the task. So in the time tracking journal, I share how you can guide those discussions so that you can help kids execute these tasks so that they can plan and that they can get through these day-to-day tasks independently. Really, it's about building executive functioning skills in a way that is supportive and not in a way that is shameful and dismissive, like 
you're going to get punished if you don't have your homework folder organized the exact right way. Really, we want to do this in a way that helps kids to build the problem-solving skills and the sequencing skills and the planning skills that they need to be able to do those skills independently, but at the same time, have an appreciation for where they are so that we can provide support where it's necessary. The Time Tracking Journal is actually a PDF download, but there are some videos that go with it to show you how to use this tool in practice. If you are interested in checking out the Time Tracking Journal, just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal to learn how you can get it. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. So now, please enjoy this interview with Brittany Bohatch. So today I am joined by Brittany Bohatch. So Brittany, do you want to start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Brittany Bohatch. I am a speech language pathologist in Pennsylvania. Um, I have worked with a whole lot of different um, kinds of clients within the field. Um, I started out in nursing homes, um, doing the geriatric end of things, but I've transitioned to a, a pediatric lens for what I do now, currently working with middle and high schoolers and also birth to three early intervention. And I love it. I love what I do. I love that I get to serve the clients that I do. Um, it, it's super fun. So I'm happy to be here. Happy to connect. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. So since we're going to cover a lot of different topics around neurodiversity and ableism and what it is and what you've seen, why don't we start off by just talking a little bit about what ableism is? So if you were to explain that concept to somebody who had never heard of it before, how would you explain it? I tend to view ableism as the idea that either able-bodied or neurotypical or a, a, a typically developing scenario, holding that as the standard by which everybody needs to, to, to follow. And when people don't fit into that um, and they're shamed for that, then that is um, kind of how I, I, I view ableism. Mm-hmm. So what would be, what's a very common example that you could give that's like a concrete example of ableism that people do without realizing it? I guess a, a concrete example would be um, like for a physical disability, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, that a, a building is only accessible via, um, via stairs mm-hmm. and a person has a physical disability that they're not able to access that because they're in a wheelchair or because they have a physical disability, and it's not on the the disabled person, um, that's not their fault. It's that they are disabled by the surroundings. They're disabled by the lack of appropriate access for them to the building mm-hmm. um, and, and shaming them for that or say, well, you figure it out. That's not my problem. Um, that's an instance of physical disability in regards to ableism. Um, yeah. But I... I see it a lot more frequently with the neurodivergent populations that that I see in my clients. I guess a, a general example would be, well, everybody else can do this. Why can't you? Or mm-hmm. everybody else knows how to keep their, their schedule 
um, just so, or, well, nobody else needs a visual timer. Nobody else needs this or a schedule. Why do I have to do this for you? Mm-hmm. But if that's something for a student that they really need to be successful within a school um, or just day-to-day life, it well, just because everybody else can do it doesn't mean that it's, um, that it's unnecessary or, or if that's what the student needs to thrive um, and, and shaming them for that. Well, why can't you just like go along and then invalidating that student for having that need for, for a visual or for some extra time. Those are, are pretty frequent and it's, it's disheartening. <laughs> yeah. I like that, that example of the wheelchair. I always start with that because that's a physical thing that people could see. I mean, it would be, I know you would hope today that people would not give somebody with a wheelchair a hard time that they can't go up the stairs. I mean, that's an obvious thing. That's like, you don't do that, you know, Mm -hmm. but with something neurological, like the other examples that you gave, you can't see it. So sometimes people think whether it be subconsciously or not, I can't see it. So it doesn't exist. So So even, even with like sensory things too. So a lot of things like going shopping, going to a shopping mall um, is overwhelming for me. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of lights, sounds, noises, smells. I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to, to sense. So walking by a candle store is unpleasant for me. I can handle it, but it takes some energy to, um, to, to walk by there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't anticipate that that's going to change. So I, I avoid that. Um, but for someone with more significant needs in that area, they, they're going to avoid that area. But some people might say from, from an ableist perspective, oh, well, just, just suck it up. Like, it's not that bad. So gaslighting, invalidating, like yeah. that, that they have this visceral reaction to their sensory processing, um, that, that the lights are, are too bright. Well, everybody else can handle it. So why can't you, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't feel really great. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I've experienced, I you know we've, we've had some conversations about that, just personally, about the, the sensory things. And I have seen that in education with some of those accommodations that you've mentioned, where it's needing a test read to you, needing extra time, needing a schedule. I had a teacher say to me one time, I was in a kindergarten class, and there was a student who was having a difficult time following along with some of the routines in the classroom. And they were in a special education classroom part of the time, but they were starting to test, do some test runs and get that student into the general education classroom so that they could be with their peers as much as possible. So they could be challenged and have access to that curriculum. And we were talking about visual schedules and the teacher stopped me and said, well, this sounds like something that should be in a special ed room, not in my room. And it's like, no, that's, that's how you get them into your room is giving them those accommodations. And that is, and I would say that I've worked with a lot of teachers who were really good about intuitively, or just, just because they wanted to help that were really good about making those accommodations. But then there were others that were a little bit more of the, well, it's not fair. Why does this student get this when the other person doesn't, you know, and I know that I've, you heard that analogy where it's, if somebody has a broken arm and then somebody else has a broken arm and a broken leg, it's not unfair that that other person has two casts and the other person doesn't have one because everybody needs something different. And I know that we use those physical examples a lot because it's something that people can understand, but 
it is a challenge. I've seen that as well. Now with the sensory thing, I'm wondering if you have ever heard somebody say, for example, oh, this student was fine in the noisy classroom on Monday. So why on Wednesday are they having a breakdown and they're not able to handle it? And they almost view it with a lens of skepticism, like, oh, you're just faking it and using it as an excuse. What's going on in those cases when somebody can tolerate something in one situation and then all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, but in another situation, they might not be able to tolerate that same sensory situation? The way that I see it um, is that like neurodivergent brains operate, it, it, it is a dynamic disability um, that some days it is, it fluctuates that it, it can present in different ways, depending on the circumstances. So we have no idea what's going on internally for a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, we, we try to be a detective, but I, I tend to think of it as a bucket, like as your bucket continues to fill um, with things that that take energy. So like if you didn't sleep well, or if you didn't have the, the right breakfast to fuel your body that day, or if your mm-hmm. um, home situation was chaotic in the morning, trying to get to school, they're trying to manage all of that. So if that happened on um, Wednesday, um, but Tuesday, they were a-okay. They slept well, they got a good breakfast, and they got to school just fine. It makes sense that they have more resources to be able to handle the challenges of school. But the next day, they could have all of these things going on. And the one thing that just like triggers them to put them over the edge could be the lights, it could be the buzzing, it could be the noise mm-hmm. in the classroom, or, or a demand or just something. And it looks like they went from zero to 60, but you don't know what was underneath of that. Mm-hmm. So it, it varies day to day. And that, that's for any child, but particularly for the ones with with a, a differently developing brain. Yeah. Or with the sensory needs. It's, it seems like it's almost a threshold thing sometimes where it's, okay, I can tolerate this for so long. And then I, I've hit my limit. <laughs> I noticed that for myself too. I operate yeah. the same way. If I don't sleep well, or if I'm upset about something, or if I'm sensitive that day or, or whatever, that, that is something internal. And so I can, I can snap at someone really quickly but then I have to like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like I'm, I'm having a rough day. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty full with um, things that are taking my energy and, and explaining that. So also having grace with myself and with kids that, that look like they just explode, but we have no idea what's going on internally um, and, until we ask or until we investigate and put some pieces together. But I think it's, it's the same for just about anyone. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so I'm, I have heard people say, and I know that sometimes if you have some kind of a diagnosis, it does feel a little dismissive when people say things like, oh, we all, we all have anxiety. Sometimes we all experience sensory issues. I mean, as a person who, and, and you can share whatever whatever you want, as far as like your own personal diagnoses and profile, but as a person who, who has some legitimate things going on, like, how do you, how do you take that when somebody says, oh, we all have issues like this? Yeah, it's, I guess it's important for me to note that I was just diagnosed with ADHD. So I Mm -hmm. identify as neurodivergent 
And it's been really cool to unpack that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But when when someone says, oh, well, everyone's just a little forgetful or everyone um, feels anxious to, uh, a little bit sometimes or, oh, well, just get it together. Like those come across as really invalidating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm working to um, lessen the impact that they have um, right. when they come up. But yeah, it, I think people are doing their best to connect and understand and try to empathize. But I think that there's a lot of education that needs to happen for adults, for children, uh, just neurodivergence in general, that it is a, a different way of processing things. So yes, someone can, can be forgetful or um, they can have trouble with a light or a sound, but I think it has to do with the level to which it affects the person. If it is yeah. disabling that you can't go through with your task, your work, your, your homework, whatever in that environment, that's when it becomes a concern. And we need to talk about accommodations and, and ways to, to work around that. Um, it, it's the, the level to which it, it is a disabling condition. Yeah. Um, where it's for those in the environment disabling versus just a little bit annoying or right. like this accommodation is convenient and it's nice versus this person can't function and can't do the task at all without this accommodation. Right. It's, it's, yeah. it's a need versus a, Oh, nice to have kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that it's for us as special education professionals to tease that out and say, what, what do I need to give the student to be successful? And, and also it's, I don't think the idea for having supports and aids and accommodations, I don't think the goal should be to get to the, to the point where they don't need those accommodations. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that we give them all of these supports and specially designed instructions and visual schedules and extra time and such for that to be taken away. If that's truly what they need, then we need to support them and let them have that um, so that they can access the the curriculum in a way that works for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know some people are able to become less dependent on those things, but if, if not, and that's that what works and it doesn't provide any, or it doesn't cause any issues for anybody, why not let them have it? I mean, why see it? Right. As it, it's, yeah. It should never be taken away. It's kind of like, like glasses. Like I wear glasses and mm-hmm. those are considered a disability aid. They're normalized because so many people have them. But if someone needs a transition item or if someone needs a, a visual timer or anything like that, those should be more normalized and not shamed or with the idea of you only need it until you figure out another way so that you don't need it. To, mm-hmm. it, it is an accommodation. It is a, a support. And if that's what they need, then rock on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, honestly, and uh, as speech pathologists, we're not the people who would do things like prescribe medication, but I've even told people from the, the stance of just giving them the tools to ask questions that they need when they do go to somebody who would be qualified to prescribe medication that you almost want to have the same level of open, openness where it's it's okay there there doesn't need to be shame around needing medication now i'm not def, i'm not promoting that everybody should do it it's definitely a serious decision there can be significant side effects 
but also if that's what you need, you need what you need and that's okay. And there shouldn't be this shame one way or the other. Cause I've seen the shaming on both sides with accommodations and with medication where it's like, on one hand, it's viewed as a crutch in this shameful thing. And then on the other hand, where if you are trying to work up a tolerance to not need those things, I've seen the shaming there as well, where it's, why don't you just give your, your child medication because that's what works or, you know, (laughs) I've seen it go both ways. And I just, I think it's, it's, it's not a good thing either in either direction, but I think it's always, it's always an individual decision for an adult or for parents um, helping their children. Um, it's no one size fits all. It, it can be a little bit of trial and error to assess the needs that are, are dynamic and always changing. Mm-hmm. How do we address them in a way that works for our preferences for, um, whatever combination works, that's what works for you. Um, and you're right. I, I don't think that there should be an element of shame for each person or someone shaming someone else for needing those. If that's what you need to be successful and feel good about yourself, then that's what you need. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it should always be an ongoing discussion, including the child or the, the patient or the, the adult um, that, that needs the support. They, they should be part of that decision-making process. What, what feels good for me and, and giving that input. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it it is kind of hard and I, that is one of the areas where it can get a little bit confusing. If you are an adult who is supporting a child and you know, that as a child, they do not have a fully developed brain. I mean, executive functioning does not fully develop until you're in your early twenties. So the part of your brain that is involved in complex decision-making and problem-solving is still developing. So that's why we need parental consent for certain things. That's why the drinking age is 21 in this country. And, you know, there's all these other things you can't do until you're a certain age. So I think sometimes it's in, in some situations, obviously it's appropriate for parents to be the ones that are making the decisions. But then at the, on the other hand, there has to be this element of scaffolding and teaching kids how to make decisions, which means that you have to start giving them some voice in the process. Otherwise, by the time you cut them loose when they're 18 or 20 or whatever, if you've given them no practice in making those decisions and no input, how are they ever going to learn to start building up those skills? So where do you see that balance? Because you've worked right now, even we were talking earlier about how you have a caseload that is early childhood, all the way through high school. So how do you find that balance between giving accommodations, providing support and, and helping with that decision-making process, but also finding that balance, I guess, and where I'm going with this is like, how do we accommodate and validate, but at, at the same time, help kids to be resilient and challenged? Yeah, it's, it's tricky because what's challenging for one student might be a neurotypical student that that might be different. It's likely to be different than what is challenging for a neurodivergent student or someone with some more involved needs. Um, it's, it is an ongoing dynamic process that involves, it really is a team approach with parents mm-hmm. and with uh, therapists, with school pr- um, providers and such. But I, I really think that um 
managing that with, with grace, without, without shame, saying here, what our needs are and not judging that. Cause I know that there can be a lot of things that are wrapped up in that process, dealing with people coming with their own views of things. If parents have a certain connection, if they have a certain parenting style that, that they are, are strong-willed or that they want it to happen a certain way. And that is different than what a therapist might think, or a, this is what I'm seeing at school that, that be tricky to navigate that. Um, but that's, that, that's what we do for our students. But I think discussing the, the expectations and mm-hmm. what, what is truly attainable. So knowing where a student is, where a child is, where we want to see them be, how can we support them to be there rather than, well, this is where they should be. So we need to force and push and um, get them to be as neurotypical as possible. Like those are are strategies that don't typically work in my experience Mm -hmm. um, of like, this is the standard. This is what the school says. This is what the law says where they have to be in order to, to get to the next level and get to, to graduate. And I think forcing that is where a lot of the breakdowns happen, but that is a, a team decision to, to think about that. Where are they now? How can we support them? And where do we want to see them go realistically that fits for everyone, including the student? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the way that I've reframed it in the past is rather than saying what is quote normal, we think we're do we want the student to go and how do we get them there versus what are they supposed to be doing? Because that is so dependent on, it could even be just local cultural norms in their, their country and, or, you know, their cultural background. There's so many different things that define what should and shouldn't happen. So I think sometimes figuring out what, like, what are you trying to do and how do we get there (laughs) versus. Yeah. I have an example from one of the preschool classes that I had recently worked in. Um, there, there were some things going on at circle time. Um, I was dealing with some pretty developmentally delayed um, three to five-year-olds and trying to have them come to circle time to learn about the weather, the shapes, colors, numbers, whatever. They were having a hard time focusing on that. And I was explaining to the teachers, okay, um, they are developmentally more infantile and that is okay. So we need to meet them where they are. Would we expect a 12 month old to want to be interested in the alphabet and numbers and colors and shapes yeah. maybe, mm-hmm. but sitting them down and, and focusing on that. And I, I do understand that they are three, four, and five. The next step is going to be kindergarten where there are more expectations to sit in your seat, to attend to non-preferred academic tasks and I was explaining to the staff, like trying to, to troubleshoot this, they were getting really frustrated. Well, why aren't they sitting? Why aren't they attending? Like, why, um, why are they trying to get up and why, why are they crying? But I, I explained to them that there were so many demands that were placed on them that they need to sit and attend and focus. They need to sit in the chair that I say. So they didn't get a pick to pick a chair. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to listen to songs that were really loud. They could have been really uncomfortable for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they could have come in with their buckets already full and they're just, they're not able to participate in that, but it, it led to more of a, a forcing thing. Well, we need to get them to sit in these chairs because that's what they expect in kindergarten. Like come hell or high water, they're going to sit and focus and we're going to force them to do it. And it was not comfortable for me. It was not comfortable for the staff and especially not my itty bitty 
little friends. Yeah. Um, they, they had a hard time. They were communicating that they weren't able to meet that standard. So what I had, had tried to do was say, there are so many levels to that demand that you are placing on them. What is another way that we can meet them where they are? If they're coming in and they're used to roaming the house, sitting is probably uncomfortable for them. Or can we get them to participate, putting something on a Velcro chart and that's, that's it. Or can, Mm -hmm. can we get them to sit for a minute? Can we get them to sit for a preferred song? We do the wheels on the bus kind of thing and let them go, but going from not sitting, not attending, don't care about the alphabet to you're going to sit for 15 minutes and focus on my chart and do the wheels on the bus and be happy about it. That is a really far stretch from where they are. So advocating for increments and little, little steps at a time, rather than going from zero to 60, it it makes for such a better environment where we're not traumatizing and invalidating these kids. Yeah. So you mentioned that the kids were communicating that they were not able to meet those demands. How does that look? Especially when you have kids that don't have the language to be able to say that in a way that a lot of people would understand. I see every behavior as a communication. I'm inferring um, what these students are saying. So if they are getting up repeatedly, if they are going to the trampoline, they're saying, I need sensory input. And if they're still attending to circle time, I think that that is a reasonable accommodation. So as long as I'm jumping, I can listen to the ABCs and one, two, threes. Um, But if they are crying, it makes me think, is this uncomfortable for them? Is it uncomfortable that it's not preferred? Is it too loud? Is it too bright in the classroom? Um, I just, I saw them getting up. I saw them um, going to try to hit the CD player to turn it off. That's pretty Mm -hmm. strong communication that they don't want that. Or they would go to the, 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 uh, the door. They would grab their coat and backpack and go to the door. That is pretty clear that they want to get on out of there. Yeah. Um, and so validating that the, the other staff, their, their approach was like, no, come back here. You can't do that. But validating that they had been off for Christmas break and they came back and it was really uncomfortable for them to be in that routine again. Me too. So validating like, Hey, I get it. It's hard coming back, but modifying the language for a little one. It's okay. I know you want to go. I hear you. Let's do something else and redirecting, but not shaming them for what adults feel too. Like they are ready to go home. I feel you little friend. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that you're saying, okay, cool. Just roam the classroom and do whatever you want. It's more that we are just starting at a level that is just above where they're currently at so that you're pushing them to the next level, almost like a go slow to go fast kind of thing, because maybe they will eventually be able to do all of those things, just not right now. Sure. If, yeah, if we're or, forcing I mean, them, if it's but, an air of like force, if it's an air of, we have to do this because this is what we, what I say rather than, okay, here's where you are. How can I validate where you are, acknowledge that and say, are we able to challenge them? Are we able to push a little bit to the next developmental stage? Mm-hmm. Um, but not, not making it such a, an intense energy. Um, 
and because kids, kids do well when they can, I know that's a Dr. Ross green quote, um, but kids do well at meeting your expectations when they are able to kids want to please kids want to do well. They want to have connection with us, but, but when it's coming from a forced place that does not acknowledge where the child is, that's when we run into behavior challenges. And I say that with, with quotes, they're communicating that they're not able to meet that. And so it's on the adult to modify the expectations, the environment, the supports to help that child. Um, But it's, yeah, so there are boundaries. I like to think of it as boundaries. You, you um, can't really roam the classroom, but you can be over here. If you need to move, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like, I get that you're having a hard time sitting. I wonder if we sat on the bouncy ball, would that help? Would it, would you sit on my lap? Or would you like to sit on this special rug or a, uh, a wiggle cushion, something like that to help them meet the expectation for sitting? Yeah, that makes sense. I think sometimes people don't realize what, even what the concept of scaffolding is, is that sometimes it's providing supports. So like you said, the, all of those accommodations, but also sometimes it's just working up the hierarchy slowly. And you as the person providing that support, whether it's a teacher in a classroom, whether it's a therapist who's teaching a skill, or whether it's a parent who's in the home environment, you're just giving them the amount of time or the amount of challenge that they need that's just a little bit above where they are. And then you're once they can do that, then you're gradually increasing it. That is that scaffolding that we were talking about earlier, even with the whole decision-making process, because if you give too much help and you're always doing it for them, that's not good either. And obviously you have to set some boundaries. And I think that that is, in my experience, when people are concerned about the the behaviors or the idea of, of validating and meeting kids where they're at, they are concerned that it's well, we're not, we're not teaching them the skills that they need, or we're just letting them roam free. And that's not what the goal is. It's not just a free for all because that's not good either. It's just, no, we're still going to provide structure and boundaries and we're not going to let them do whatever they want. It's just that we're not going to place as much on them at once. I think that's where it gets a little confusing. And I'm sure you can go too far in one direction or the other. And sometimes you might, it is trial and error because sometimes you might realize, oh, well, maybe I gave a little more leeway. Maybe I do need to provide some more structure and boundaries and challenge them a little bit more because they're the level that I'm giving is not enough to keep them, I don't know what the word is, disciplined. I hate to use that word with the little yeah. ones, but, but yeah, I mean, some boundaries are good. It, it's, it's good to provide those bumpers, but at the same time, it, it can't be too rigid that it's just traumatizing. As you said. <laughs> are going to wrap up this episode here, but stay tuned for the next half of the interview in episode 51. So really in this first half of our conversation, we talked about the problems with placing too many demands at a time 
on a child who has a lot going on, whether it be sensory needs or needs when it comes to communication or just from the standpoint of where they are developmentally. So we've addressed the problem in this episode. The second half of the conversation, we get into some tangible examples of solutions. So we talk about scaffolding. In this first part of the conversation, we've mentioned a lot of times that you need to meet kids where they're at and gradually increase the difficulty of what you're asking them to do so that the situation isn't forced or traumatizing for them. But at the same time, we are placing some boundaries and demands on them so that they can learn valuable skills. So in the second half of the conversation, we give some specific examples of scaffolding for some of the younger students that Brittany works with. And then I gave an example that I've given before, but I go into a little bit more detail of a student who was able to work through a situation that was very challenging from a sensory perspective, but he was able to work through it in a way that felt empowering to him, but also was meeting him where he was at the time. So we get into those specific examples in the next episode. Now, if you want to reach out to Brittany and ask her some questions. She is licensed in Pennsylvania, and she does have a private practice called Satellite Pediatric Therapy Services, and you can find her on Instagram if you have any questions about some of the things that we talked about today, or if you are interested in finding a therapist in Pennsylvania. And if you have some additional questions or if you want some additional information about how to scaffold and talk through some of these challenging situations, whether it be situations that require executive functioning skills or whether they're just challenging non-preferred tasks and you want to help kids learn strategies to be more resilient in completing those tasks so that they can learn some valuable skills so they can be more independent, then I invite you to check out my time tracking journal. This tool is more appropriate for older kids who are at least in early elementary school. So not necessarily appropriate for the early childhood populations because it does require some discussions and language skills. But if you are working through some of these situations that might be challenging from a sensory perspective or from a skill-based perspective because a child doesn't have the executive functioning and problem-solving skills yet to be able to work through that situation, then definitely check out the Time Tracking Journal. This is a tool that will help your kids to build executive functioning skills and planning skills during day-to-day tasks, whether it be homework, whether it be things around the house, making meals, or other other things that require planning and problem solving, which let's be honest, is your whole life. So check out that time tracking journal. It will help you to guide those conversations and to scaffold and teach your kids those skills. To check that out, you can go to drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash time journal. So stay tuned for the second half of the interview with Brittany coming up next week in episode 51. And feel free to connect with her on Instagram. Again, that's Satellite Pediatric Therapy Services. I will link to some of these resources in the show notes. But for now, 
Remember that it helps us so much if you leave us a five-star rating and review on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would benefit from the information. And finally, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. 